Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lalith Vijay Doru. He's a consultant pediatrician and an independent well-being consultant. More of that later. Lal obtained his medical degree from University College London Medical School here in the United Kingdom, and he specialized in pediatric emergency medicine. He also obtained a master's degree in tropical pediatrics at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. That's where I went to medical school. It's a great place. He has a clinical and research interest in global child health, specifically the diagnosis of acute febrile illness and the recognition of child abuse in healthcare settings. He's the founder of Behind Your Mask, a company that focuses on workplace-based storytelling. Lal is a renaissance chap. We were introduced by a mutual friend. He's a superb pianist and is very engaging. Given the diverse nature of his approaches and his perspectives on life, we thought it would be a great idea to do this in two bite-sized chunks. I, for one, can't wait to learn more about the work he does. So let's get going with the first part. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lalith Vijay Doru. Thank you, Mr. Sakir, and hello to the listeners of EMJ. So let's start with this. What, what inspired you to become a doctor and, and to specialize in pediatric emergency medicine? Well, that's a very long story, Jonathan. Um, I was a real voracious reader at school, and I was inspired by Sherlock Holmes. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle based Sherlock Holmes on the real-life figure of an Edinburgh surgeon called Mr. Joseph Bell. And uh, Mr. Bell was noted for using logic and deduction, drawing broad conclusions from his astute power of patient observation. And I really loved that kind of deductive, creative problem solving by doing focused examinations and inspections and probing questioning. So basically, it's, it's bread and butter clinical skills that he was demonstrating. And so there's another real life but literary inspiration, and he was Roald Dahl in his autobiography, Going Solo. And I remember his account of having high fever with malaria in East Africa and his, his vivid descriptions of the treatments that he received. I mean, they really stuck with me. And so that was another inspiration. And um, from my own adverse childhood experiences of experiencing physical and emotional abuse, I've always been interested in the welfare of others, especially children. And uh, I did my work experience for UNICEF, and I saw the impact of socioeconomic interventions, such as maternal literacy, on child health outcomes. Um, I have heritage from, from Sri Lanka, where high levels of maternal literacy compared to uh, South Asian neighbors is strongly associated with higher vaccination rates, lower birth rates, and better child morbidity and mortality statistics. So this combination of this really cemented my desire to work in global child health. And um, pediatric emergency medicine is because in the UK, it's a specialty that I think is most relevant to global child health. So most people think that global child health is all about infectious diseases. I mean, yes, it's a large chunk of it, but, but you also need to be able to manage the non-communicable diseases like malnutrition, road traffic accidents, pollution-induced respiratory illness. And so pediatric emergency medicine is about managing large volumes of the worried well and picking up the not-so-obviously sick ones, in addition to expert managing the clearly critically unwell children in that very important first hour when they present to a healthcare facility. So all in all, it goes back to Sherlock Holmes, sharp powers of observation, focused questioning, and differential diagnosis, generating core clinical skills. That's important. 
That's fantastic, Lal. Uh, um, of course, you exist and Sherlock didn't, but yeah, very, very perceptive. You know, actually, uh, I've just had um, an epiphany, a thought. Uh, when my kids were growing up in America, uh, the American Academy demanded that pediatricians at the regular visit uh, would ask the, the family about, did they use um, car seats with, 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 uh, with regularity? And they asked a few other questions, but things they never asked about were family issues with addiction. And it always struck me, maybe, maybe, maybe you could head off problems uh, just by <laughs> looking more about the circumstances, because we talked about, you know, socioeconomics, the circumstances in which the kid is being brought up. Absolutely important. I spoke at a um, uh, at a medicine in action conference, which was inspiring people to consider medicine as a career. And the talk that I gave there was about the socioeconomic determinants of health. And I used examples of um, adverse childhood experiences, specifically child abuse, both in developed and developing country settings. And um, I I'm very proud that actually one of my colleagues who was interviewing for Liverpool Medical School, which is where you went to, actually quoted me by name, saying that I was inspired to do medicine hearing a talk by, by me talking about the socioeconomic determinants of health because that's what they think health is about. It's about thinking about the circumstances and the context of health. That, that's wonderful, and that must make you very uh, justly proud. Of course, the World Health Organization and the United Nations talk about health as being more than the absence of disease. You've mentioned socioeconomics again and, you know, different settings. You, you've worked as an educator, researcher, clinician in low resource settings in multiple different countries, such as Laos, Cambodia, Bangladesh, as well as obviously here in the UK. How have those different settings in, impacted your work, your worldview, the way you see things up? I mean, it's, it's been very important to me because it was something that I always set out to do. Um, uh, it, it has given me perspective, really. It's made me reflect on cultural differences of how different communities view the human condition. I mean, I remember a particular time a Bangladeshi doctor saying to me, I mean, we, we dealt with a, a, an unfortunate primary school-aged child who died following intractable seizures. And it was a clinical syndrome very suggestive of encephalitis. And he said to me, Doctor, life is cheap here. And it made, that statement made me reflect on how Western society views death as a failure, where other cultures are more accepting of it as part of the life cycle. And so uh, another thing, particularly working in developing countries as, you know, as the foreigner, it made me reflect on the role of impact of foreign donors as well as well-meaning healthcare volunteers. And I firmly believe in the importance of local healthcare teams driving the agenda of what is needed for the populations that they serve. Like parents and their children, they know best. Almost, you know, we, we are in danger of being neo-healthcare colonialists, you know, more developed healthcare economies thinking that if they provide state-of-the-art ventilators and a brand new hospital wing, which looks great, of course, on a, on a donor annual report and makes donors feel good, but is not what is needed on the ground. And similarly, when you think about being an educator, if you are an educator working in such settings, you need to be able to educate on locally relevant topics rather than what we are familiar with from, from a more resource setting. And so I feel very strongly that this that working in resource settings such as, such as Laos or Cambodia, it should be about building local capacity. 
it's not about long-term parachuting in and looking like the health savior. I mean, I believe in the saying that giving someone a fish, you feed them for a day. But if you teach someone how to fish, you will feed them for a lifetime. And that's how we need to approach healthcare and capacity building in health. Yeah, your, 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 your comments are really apropos. I've had the privilege of, of operating teaching around the world. And I think my one point of reflection would be that every time I went to a, quote, resource-constrained country, I learned a damn sight more than I taught. Um, I learned about the, uh, the power of the human spirit. I learned about how you, wasteful we are in the West in many regards. Um, in fact, operating in China once, um, uh, we, are, you know, we, we wear, obviously, sterile gloves. And at the end of the operation, we would um, rub them in uh, methylene blue. And if our hands had any blue on them, we'd throw them away. And if we didn't, then they'd wash the gloves and use them again. Um, so, yeah, very, very interesting. So I want to come on to this whole storytelling thing because I'm intrigued. When you and I spoke uh, in setting this up, uh, you really got my attention. So you founded a company that uses storytelling in the workplace. What do you mean by storytelling? And please help us understand how storytelling plays a role in the context of well-being, which is going to be a whole other theme of the second podcast. Well, I'm very grateful that you've asked me this question because many people assume that because I'm a pediatrician that it's and work with children, that it's all about stories and that I read stories to people and that I'm a storyteller. You know, don't get me wrong, I am absolutely willing to share my stories, warts and all, but that is not what my company is about. So my company is called Behind Your Mask. The mask represents our professional mask. And behind that mask, are our personal stories which make us human. And so my company wants to help any organization, of course, including healthcare teams, how to be more human to each other. And the strategy for that is through sharing personal stories. So the stories are prepared in advance with my help as a facilitator. So I create psychologically safe, reflective spaces with boundaries for these stories to be shared between colleagues. And so this is important for well-being because it allows people to reveal their true feelings to a team that needs to trust them. And by doing so, it creates a compassionate work culture where people listen to each other with curiosity and empathy. And so this process of sharing a story and then listening to a story and then understanding and reflecting on that story creates connection. And human connection in this time of great disconnect is a core building block of our well-being as a human species. So for example, I mean, you're a surgeon, Jonathan, so I've imagined a male 50-year-old head of the Department of Surgery. He has to, he often maintains this veneer of in surgical infallibility. But at home, he might be a single widowed father of two teenage daughters who has no idea how to talk to them about sex. And so one day he's called to assist a gynecology surgical colleague when a teenage girl born on the exact same age as his teenage daughter had her bowel perforated following emergency surgery for the removal of an ectopic pregnancy. And that triggered something in him. In psychological terms, this is called transference. And so this clinical encounter suddenly brought his work close to home and he struggled with this in private. So could sharing his story about the social and emotional impact of his work on his private life be a way to help him reconcile this? I think that that would be a very useful strategy for him. That's absolutely fascinating. And 
yeah, boy, does that resonate. And, you know, we're often told to, oh, I don't know, to leave our personal lives out of it. I think you're absolutely right. Our personal lives need to be part of it. So give us an example of how a story set, a storytelling session might work. And what's your role as a facilitator for storytelling sessions? Uh, so... Uh, my role as a, in the storytelling session is as a facilitator. So there are three main players in the storytelling session. There is the facilitator, that is me. There is a storyteller or a series of storytellers. And then the audience. So the, my role as a facilitator is that I create the space. I create a psychologically safe space where people can share their stories with boundaries. And I have to guide and set the ground rules and make sure that it is a confidential safe space. My other role as, as a facilitator is to help people craft their stories. And this is not a, 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 people think that, oh, a storytelling session is you turn up with a microphone and off you go. No, no, these stories are well-crafted and you know are on a theme. And I help almost in a coaching way, help storytellers reflect on a certain uh, on a certain experience or series of events to help them deliver a story with impact and one of my jobs is to really focus on the emotions of those stories so that's a sto so the storyteller is a member of the team or the community that works with me to create this story and they will share this story uninterrupted uh, in front of their colleagues and the audience are the colleagues who listen with curiosity empathy and understanding to the stories and then after the stories are finished they then i open up the floor to a discussion where the st the audience can reflect maybe share some of their own stories or perhaps give their comment uh, to the stories that they've heard. The thing that I have to be very clear about is most of us in healthcare, we like to hear a problem and then we like to solve it. These storytelling sessions are not problem-solving sessions. They are a place to pause through reflective practice to listen with understanding, with the intention to understand rather than to reply. And so I've done this in different healthcare teams from the executive board of a hospital to catering staff in a care home to nurses being redeployed to a different department. The opportunities are endless. And I'm also delighted to report that I work outside of healthcare. I've worked with many other sectors, including teachers in education um, or musicians in performing and visual arts. Those work in digital technology. So the concept is the same, but the, the, health, the, the, sec, the work sector could be different. And when and where, how might storytelling be appropriate, you know, in the healthcare environment for, for doctors, for nurses, other healthcare professionals? I mean, there are already well-established models of storytelling in the healthcare environment. So what I'm doing is nothing really new. So one um, is, is, is Schwartz Rounds, and this is led largely by the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Care, which is based in Boston, Massachusetts. And in the UK, the same concept is championed by the Point of Care Foundation. So Schwartz Rounds are spaces where both clinical and non-clinical staff working in healthcare meet to share stories about the social and emotional impact of their work. So again, this could work in a healthcare environment and in a, across an organized a healthcare organization like a, a hospital and people can meet uh, face to face to to share these and listen to these stories Another example are valent groups. And so again, using similar concepts, a leader asks participants in a group to share a clinical experience or a patient which has been on their mind. The audience then listens without interrupting and then invited by the leader to respond or resonate with that story. So again, these are psychologically safe spaces where the emphasis is not on problem solving, but more for the acknowledgement of the emotions surrounding the case or event to allow for personal reflection. So 
you know, th- there are already models of story uh, of storytelling in in healthcare, and um, and yes, yeah, so I am just trying to do it on a bolder, more ambitious, more uncomfortable level um, uh, to to really get to uh, the, the dark as well as the highs, the uh, the joys of, of the emotions of of working in healthcare. So that's fascinating, Lal. When it comes to emotion, let's talk about. Uh, emotional well-being. I know that's something that's important to you. And we're going to, like I say, we're going to discuss that in the second podcast in this series. But how does storytelling play a role in emotional well-being? So I think emotional well-being is about being happy, being content. Um, I'm from a Buddhist background. So there is a Buddhist saying that much of human unhappiness is caused by not facing reality squarely, exactly as it is. So for me, that means living in denial. Denial of our personal truths can be a very negative force when it comes to all aspects of our well-being. And these truths may be uncomfortable, unpalatable even. And for me, that is okay. The reason why I'm passionate about storytelling is that it allows us to talk about those uncomfortable truths discuss those truths, explore our emotions that those truths entail. It is through this process of reflecting on those truths that light bulb moments can happen. And those light bulb moments can lead to changes in attitude and changes in behavior for the better. Stories are about being authentic. Listening without judgment to stories of others is being compassionate and empathetic. And for me, truth and kindness are the building blocks of love. And um, you may know that there is a, a, a company called Gallup, which looks at staff engagement surveys. And one of the questions in their surveys is, do you have a best friend at work? And to me, that is really asking, is who loves you at work? You know, who's got your back? Who will listen to your truth? Who will treat you kindly when you're down? So stories foster authenticity, compassion, and they create connection. And it is connection that is core to our emotional well-being. Okay, so talking of emotions, I want to talk a little bit about burnout. First, could you please define it as it applies to physicians? And although anyone can be impacted by burnout, um, please tell us why physician burnout is a particular problem. Yes, you're absolutely right, Jonathan. Burnout can happen in a range of occupations, but it frequently occurs in the caring profession, such as in healthcare. Um, The American Medical Association defines physician burnout as a long-term stress reaction. So the AMA cites three key features or symptoms, which include, and you mentioned it, emotional exhaustion. So again, difficulty with emotional well-being. The second one is depersonalization. So I think they define that as a, a lack of empathy for or negative attitudes towards patients. In the UK, we may use the term compassion fatigue to encompass depersonalization. And finally, the feelings of decreased personal achievement. And I think this is particularly relevant for a group of individuals like doctors who are traditionally considered high achievers. The Roughly two-thirds of physicians in the United States report signs of burnout. Now, here in the UK, the British Medical Association discusses multiple factors contributing to burnout, and these include chronic excessive workloads, increasing patient demand and expectation, which includes threats of complaints or even violence from the public. I know certainly working in the emergency department, that threat of physical violence is very real. Of course, the lack of control, and we all know from working throughout the coronavirus pandemic, that certainly was magnified, that kind of lack of control. And with that lack of control comes 
micromanagement and interference of managers. And one of the major causes of stress in, from storytelling that I did in the health service was the constant reorganization, the constant changing of, of the goalposts. Another aspect is the poor organizational support, which may include toxic or dysfunctional workplaces. So I want to be clear that, you know, as a storyteller facilitator, I'm very clear that unfortunately I can't solve all the contributory factors to burnout. But what I can provide is a strategy that addresses emotional support for staff and can make changes to the culture of workplaces over time through stories. And this is important while the healthcare system that is contributing to burnout can adapt and reform. So you, you mentioned um, COVID, just talked about burnout. The COVID-19 pandemic certainly raised the profile of this condition. And you participated in a project at the University of Manchester, NHS Voices of COVID. What did this involve? And did you get the opportunity to, uh, to bring your perspective to bear? Oh, absolutely. So um, as somebody who is very interested in, in reading and stories, and I'm, I was... Uh, um, I was very much interested in history when I was at school. And so when the opportunity for an oral history project, when the, when the NHS turned 70, um, came up by the University of Manchester, I, you know, I, I jumped up at the chance to share my story about my experiences of, of the NHS to celebrate the 70th birthday of the NHS. And I spoke mostly about being um, uh, an ethnic minority in healthcare and the changes to, to training. And um, when the global pandemic hit, the same organization and the same fund that had funded the University of Manchester wanted to capture these historic moments and create this um, oral history project called NHS Voices of COVID. And because I had contributed to the NHS at 70, I was invited to um, speak at uh, for the NHS Voices of COVID. What they wanted to do is that they wanted to speak to different uh, sections of the health service and of course, both patients and staff to be interviewed every fortnight for an hour to chronicle, to document what they were going through throughout the pandemic. And so, um, of course, it was all social distance. So I was met with a oral historian researcher. His name was Jonathan Hammond, uh, who was commissioned by the University of Manchester. And uh, we embarked on a, uh, on, on a relationship of oral history where he spoke to me and interviewed me every hour, uh, sorry, every fortnight for an hour. And um, it chronicled my, everything that we were going through in the health service, right through from, you know, the changes in government policy about social distancing and the challenges of PPE and the constant micromanaging and, and um, you know, what sort of things we were seeing in the emergency departments such as child abuse. And of course, also mapping out my, my realization that actually I could make a great impact using storytelling for, um, for teachers and carers in, in the health service as well. And um, it was interesting. So the, 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 this pod, them, these stories have actually formed part of a, a archive, which is now formally archived as part of the project in the British Library. And um, uh, the group of storytellers from, from the Children's Hospital where I was working were fortunate to be painted by an artist who was showcasing at the Tate Liverpool. And yeah. I met John Hammond, who is the guy who was interviewing me, for the very first time in person um, at this exhibition, you know, after 30 hours of interviews. And uh, it was quite an emotional moment. And um, the other emotional moment was when my voice 
talking about the importance of looking after staff during the pandemic was used in the promotional video for the launch of the British Library Archive. So I feel honored and privileged that I got this opportunity and glad that the the, 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 the well-being of staff has been captured by an art at a Tate Liverpool exhibition and also now in an oral history project at the British Library. Wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, and, you know, as I was asking the question and I said, you know, did you get to give your perspective? <laughs> We've not known each other a long time now, but I'd be highly surprised if you didn't get your perspective in. So we're going to get into the concepts of well-being in the, the second episode, as I've said. But by way of introduction, your work, research, has focused on human connection. Tell us about this, if you would. So it's very interesting about this concept of human connection. I was um, recently at an academic conference where the the chief executive of NHS Practitioner Health, which is Health, which is an organisation which supports um, uh, the emotional well being of doctors, they spoke about one of the key things that needs to happen to promote emotional well-being in the workplace is human connection. And so why is this relevant? It is important for for healthcare teams to be connected with each other. And so to quote um, Simon Sinek, who who talks a lot about this, a, a team is not a group that works together. A team is a group of people that trusts each other. And trust comes from human connection. And so um, it is absolutely important in clinical practice. As somebody who works in the emergency department, we have to work in resuscitation teams, teams that have to come together very quickly in a very uh, critical moment. And you have to have a team that works together and that and a team that trusts each other. And so using human connection and using stories to build that connection is really important. And then, of course, I think about going back to um, Sherlock Holmes taking the history, taking a story from a patient, you have to establish trust, you have to establish connection. So the whole purpose of listening to people's stories and listening to your colleagues stories at a very deep and uh, deep and analytical level it is very it, these are very useful clinical skills to have in terms of dealing with your patients so not only is it useful for the functioning of the health service in terms of the clinical teams and colleagues it is also a very relevant skill uh, to helping with your with your patients and if we think about clinical leadership authenticity is what the new generation of healthcare professionals is looking for. They are looking for their leaders to be authentic. And the leader sharing a bit about themselves through story demonstrates authenticity. And of course, going back to a compassionate, non-toxic, non-dysfunctional, non-denial workplace, using stories to acknowledge those uncomfortable truths will be an excellent way to establish connection. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. You quoted uh, Sherlock at the beginning. You've quoted Sherlock at the end. Um, folks, we're going to wrap up this uh, session now, and next time we're going to discuss well-being with our wonderful guest, Dr. Lalith uh, Vijay Doru. Lalith, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. So everyone, please make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode of the EMJ podcast, and please check out our archives. They're stuffed full of great conversations with awe-inspiring guests who will make you see the world through a different optic. Please tune in next week for the second part of our discussion with Dr. Lalith Vijay Duru. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia, hoping you stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>